welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C, and I am definitely an alcoholic, whether I've had a drink today or not. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about verse 9. I'd like to welcome Marla and Craig and Dennis and Chris. Welcome, guys and gal. <laughs> verse 9 today, for me, I saw just this idea of more. This really was a description of how a lot of people describe themselves in recovery is that they had the disease of more more of everything so we had a couple of questions for sensei in regards to the ninth verse of the Tao Te Ching to see how Zen approached this verse good to have you sir how are thank you, you this today? uh I'm, I'm I'm good thank good. you how are you more importantly doing well doing well we always enjoy hearing your insights. Can we? We haven't read it yet. Let's let's read it for everybody. Yeah. And see hey. how does he read it? Does Jonathan Starr do a good job on this one? Let's see, I was looking in the back of this one. The, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read this one, and but if you look in the back, they have the verbatim translations which are very interesting to scan through. I use that all the time. It has all the, all the possible translations of the symbols are in there. Hey, hey Sensei, it's like the uh, internet for the Tao Te Ching. You look long enough, you can make it say anything yeah. you want it to say, right? That's right. So you have to admire the translators to sort of pull it together the way they do. But it's very interesting if you read down all the the meanings of all of these terms that are used, you get a different insight, different uh, insight into it. Grabbing and stuffing, there is no end to it. Sharpen a blade too much, and its edge will soon be lost. Fill a house with gold and jade, and no one can protect it. Puff yourself with honor and pride, and no one can save you from a fall. Complete the task at hand. Be selfless in your actions. This is the way of heaven. This is the way to heaven. Hmm. Yeah. So heaven, I think, uh, in Taoism means just being in in uh, balance, right? I mean, that's the way we understand it. It's heaven on earth. Not heaven after, not, not an afterlife heaven. Right. Heaven on earth kind of thing. Right. And to be in to be in, um, in in balance, in harmony with the Tao, or with the way that is uh, that is the he that's heaven, right? Yes. Heaven, I'm in heaven. <laughs> well, even Jesus said the kingdom of God's within you already. Yes, yes. So um, the first question, how is the need or desire need for more addressed in Zen? Um, the um, It's an odd question, just 
how, how much is enough is, is one of the questions in both in design and in Zen, my profession, as some of you know, is design, industrial design, graphic design. And one of the famous sayings around uh, design is less is more. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember who famous designer came up with that. But the it's kind of like a, a Zen aesthetic idea. If you look at a Zen environment, you know, they're famous for the simplicity. Simplicity is a very high achievement in design as well as Zen. And it doesn't always mean the same thing in different contexts. Less is more would be how much is enough? What do you need? Um, those of us who live in this consumerist society and have accumulated junk or stuff over our lives, you know, end up with basements and closets and attics full of stuff, as my dad did. And I had, after he died, I had to go clean out his house up in Illinois and do yard sales and stuff. You know, so I'm I'm looking around with a jaundiced eye at my house and as an artist designer, you know, I've accumulated a lot of stuff that I had plans for. <laughs> I probably won't live long enough to do anything with. So uh, more becomes really less. Uh, you know, your possessions end up possessing you. You end up spending all of your time just the house's job is to fall down. Our job is to prop it up. You know, and we spend all our time doing that. So the the perspective in Zen, I think, is like that. It's just kind of a practical thing. A monk uh, traditionally owns seven objects. He has a hat, sandals, uh, three bowls, a bowl set, you know, three robes. Uh, very few things that a monk traditionally it was considered essential. And then their business model was the begging bowl. You know, put the bowl out and somebody put something in it, you hope. So if you can think of reducing your life down to its ultimate simplicity, uh, it's, it's uh, way beyond um, what we usually think of as more in our, in our society. Um, I think it would be qualitative more, not quantitative. It'd be my, like more. What's what's a more better way to live? You know, what's what's more fulfilling? Um, in the meal verse, we say um, we reflect on the efforts that brought us this food and consider how it comes to us. We reflect on our virtue and practice and whether we are worthy of this offering. We regard greed as the obstacle to freedom of mind. We regard this meal as medicine to sustain our life for the sake of enlightenment. We now receive this food. But here, greed means wanting too much rice, you know, or take, taking more rice than you actually need. It's not like Gordon Gecko. <laughs> it's like, did you take a few too many grains of rice? Uh, so the whole idea of greed, greed, hate, and delusion are called the three poisons. Greed, anger, and delusion are folly. Uh, greed is one of the three poisons. But it can be expressed sexually. 
It can be expressed in terms of power, status, prestige, or a few too many grains of rice and you're being greedy. So is that uh, close to an answer there? Less is more, I would say, in Zen. Hey, Marla, you had some before the before we started recording, we were talking about this a little bit. Do you have any you want to ask and say in regards to how you were you were talking about with more like you were talking about intellectually more and all these yeah, things? like the, the the desire for more knowledge and, and just like never like thinking you never know enough. You need to know more. Yeah. Um, that can be a kind of greed as well. Yeah, too much knowledge is, and then the yeah. Tao asks us to unlearn everything. So we're, you know, we were talking about that. There was a couple of incidents in the history of Zen that were very famous for um, this point that you're bringing up. Huinang uh, made a public display of burning sutras. And um, at that time, Huinang was... Gee, when was he? He was a sixth patriarch in China, in patriarch in China so he was pretty far back. Uh, he had to be around the 600s or something like that. And he was a young, illiterate, 25-year-old from the boondocks when uh, he was made patriarch by Hongren, the fifth patriarch. Very unusual story. So he, he made a public display of burning the Sutras there, you can look this up, Google it. Huinang burns the sutras, and they have a painting of him. They have pictures of, you know, illustration. He was making the point that um, at that time in China, erudition, scholarly scholarship, the ability to quote the sutras chapter and verse and so forth, had taken precedence over genuine experience. And uh, whoever could, you know, outdo the other in, in erudition and scholarly knowledge was considered the winner of the debate or more enlightened or whatever. So in that case, it's not exactly less is more, but he was saying, you know, you've gone way off the deep end on this one extreme. All these sutras are doing is pointing at reality pointing at the present reality. And so to reify the sutras to make the written word, you know, scripture, inerrant scripture, all of those kinds of ideas, to make that the point was to miss the main major point of what Zen is pointing at. So he he burnt the scriptures. He burnt the scrolls. And um, we would consider that kind of a crime because from our perspective, those would be priceless, you know, be like burning the Red Sea Scrolls. Um, and this happened a couple times in history, and there were so, several smaller incidents of it. One was the famous uh, case of the priest who wanted to buy rice cakes. And so there's a woman by the side of the road, she was selling rice cakes. And here he comes along, and he's pushing a big cart full of scrolls. And so he stops and asks if he can buy, purchase a, a rice cake or some rice cakes to eat. And so the woman, as often happens in Zen, the woman gets the better of the 
so-called enlightened priest, some woman who's theoretically has, you know, ordinary, just common person. And so um, she asked him what he, what, who he is, what's he doing, so forth, where are you going? So he told her he was a scholar, uh, and he was going to this temple to give a lecture on the three minds, San Shenji, uh, this magnanimous mind, nurturing mind, joyous mind, or joyful mind, something like that. The three minds. It's a doctrine, uh, Zen doctrine. And he had this big, uh, what he was carrying in the cart was all of these crows and doctrines that he would, you know, refer to and, and so forth, like, like any scholar would do. Nowadays, it's books, you know, or it's online. Uh, and so she says, well, I will, I will gladly sell you these rice cakes if you can tell me which of the three minds they are going to nourish. couldn't answer and so he ends up getting rid of all of his scrolls and giving up his scholarly <laughs> practice <laughs> so there's been a long tradition in zen to honor or recognize the simple down-to-earth grasp of reality and it's not anti-intellectual but it's to say that yes and dogen insisted yes the dharma is also in the scriptures they are also the dharma so it's not an outright rejection of uh scholarship and certainly the the written record is highly revered but you know if you if you go too far out of balance over that way then it's more has become less again is that like the finger pointing at the moon kind of thing they're they're you know the words are these earnest attempts that great fully enlightened masters have made over time to try to put it in words but we understand that the language itself is dualistic and so you can only tell you know half of the story you can't tell the whole story it has to point back at your experience the the actual moon is your experience Fingers pointing at it are the words, and so, or the tracks in the ox herding pictures, like that. That's what I like about the simplicity of uh, Zen Sensei is that uh, the answers are found by just sitting. They're not found by reading another book. Well, I'd say it's more like a balance between the two. Um, reading a book, as I mentioned in my book, put in a plug <laughs> other than your book in my book state the name the original frontier um i make the point that uh any book about zen should probably be read between bouts of sitting so i say keep it by your toilet <laughs> but you, you could read it between bouts sessions of meditation right and so I give you some help, but otherwise, if you're not meditating, reading books about it are a little bit like reading the documentation for an application that you're not using. If you have an application like Word doc or, or uh, Excel or any of them, and you get the documentation online or in a book, which it usually come out, these big books came with the package. 
it will make some sense to you to read that book, especially if you run into a situation. I dropped my ear out. Especially if you run into a situation where you have a glitch, they can help you give you a workaround. Mm -hmm. But if you're not even using the application, they're not going to make any sense. Probably not much sense at all if you just read the documentation. So it's like that with Zen. If you're not doing the application, meaning sitting in meditation, the books are meant to be documentation that backs that up. And so if you run into a glitch in your meditation, you can maybe turn to a book and you may find something. People like me who are in the position of trying to teach Zen or help people with Zen are like coaches. We're like the uh, online techies, you know. <laughs> and so you have a live person you can talk to about situations you run into. So I think that's sort of the proper place of literature and even liturgy. Liturgy is a little different than Zen because we're chanting again and again these teachings. They're not worshipful. They're not prayer. They're teachings uh, in words that great ancestors have put down on paper, uh, which in those days was, you know, that was a task. You had to brush and rice paper. We didn't have computers and printers and so forth. Uh, so you're repeating these teachings again and again and again in order to assimilate them. So even, even our chanting, the liturgy is not the same as, uh, say, uh, a Christian service or a, a Jewish service in a synagogue. It's, these are teachings to be assimilated, and that's why we repeat them by chanting them. And say the the chants, they were the 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 purpose of that was to teach people that were mostly illiterate, like a lot of the common people did not read at that time, correct? Probably. That I, you would think that was part of the reason behind that putting the part of it, but I think it's also was just very difficult to publish anything. It had to be hand copied mm -hmm. until they invented movable type in China. Uh, you know, wood woodcuts, and then they and that led to movable movable type, meaning the hieroglyphics were carved into blocks and you could print them. So, but long before that, and the other reason is, once it's written down, even by hand, it, when you copy it, you can change it, and you can change it by accident or you can change it intentionally for political reasons, for instance. And so they felt that the transmission of the Dharma was better handled through the oral tradition because you, you can't change it. You can't mess with it. You literally have to go join a couple hundred monks and nuns chanting to even hear it. And then to learn it, you have to chant over and over until you've memorized it. And so you're not likely to go changing it arbitrarily because it's difficult enough just to memorize it. <laughs> That was brilliant. Well, I think for the first for the first four hundred years, and Christianity was the same. That they think that the the teaching was transmitted much more accurately, dependably, because it wasn't written down. Hmm. Thank you. And, and that it was too it was too sacred to write down. They had written language. They had Sanskrit, and they had business records and so forth. Hmm. Anything else for that first question, guys? That was good. Thank you. Thank you. So the second one says, how is the need or desire need? Oh, no. According to Zen, 
how do you determine that a task or project is complete, especially in regard to creative tasks like painting or writing a book? Well, since I've had some experience in painting and have written a book, <laughs> uh, there's not there's no one simple answer to this question. I was just talking with uh, a woman on the west coast of Canada who is trying to paint. I was giving her some coaching around how she she sent me some pictures of her her work, and she's really disappointed with it. One thing I told her is, you know, when I got out of undergraduate school, the Institute of Design in Chicago, my first wife and I lived in an apartment on the north side. And in the middle of our dining room, I had a couple easels and a couple of canvases on them that I was painting, painting on. I had painting class in, in school, and I was working on my graduate, my uh, master's degree. So I was working jobs and things outside, but I, at home I would paint because I, I thought I would be a, wanted to become a painter. And I thought that's what the school was about uh, when I went there. It turned out it was a design school. And so I got a broader education than it would have been a say we're fine art so at the end of a year i still had these two canvases on these two easels and each one probably had 50 paintings on it but they were all painted over you know so the only one you could see is the one on top so i had to learn to that you never get the painting done it's never finished not especially abstract painting but like slicing bread, you have to learn to call this one a victory and set it aside, you know, put a blank up and start over. You're, you're doing the same painting, essentially, each time you take a new canvas. That is, you're doing the same kind of process. But if you don't stop and set them aside, then you don't ever end up with a body of work. You know, uh, Picasso. Uh, Da Vinci, Jackson Pollock, any, well, maybe not Jackson Pollock because it would have gotten so thick. I was going to say they could have painted on one canvas their whole life, right? But you have to learn, oh, this one's done. Set it aside. It's not done. You just, you know, that's, you know, 0 0.01. The next one's going to be 0 0.02 points, et cetera. So when you're working alone, uh, it's a different, difficult problem. It's a different problem. When I first sent the manuscript uh, to the publisher, which was Wisdom Publications, that, that became the original Frontier, they sent back uh, a letter. They, they weren't going to publish it because it was, they felt that the content was in a category that they'd already published a whole lot of books around that same kind of category. Uh, uh, it, which turns out not to be true because Wisdom has never published anything like this book. But they said, we think you have two books here, or we think you have more than one book here. And so I went through it. I had this big manuscript. I went through it, and I divided it into a stack in which nothing was said about, nothing much was said about Zen in relation to society. And this that was one stack where it was all about Zen in relationship to society. And the other stack was more Zen in relationship to your personal, to the person, to, you know, individual. That's the personal one is what became the original frontier. It's kind of like a manual to use for an individual. 
So the one that uh, we're publishing next, I'm just finishing the editing, and the manuscript is due June 1st, is called Razor Blade, The Razor Blade of Zen. And Matsuoka Roshi once said, when you're sitting Zazen, everything will come at you. you know, just keep cutting through it like a razor. He said the middle way is the most extreme position of all, like a razor cutting through the razor's edge. Our tightrope walker on a tightrope. It's the most extreme position right in the middle. So this one is called the razor blade of Zen, and it's more about where Zen fits our culture between the extremes of religion and fundamentalism and theism in general on one end of the spectrum, the extremes of uh, materialism, science, uh, reductionism, you might say, on the other end, the extremes. Zen is right down the middle. And there's actually a chart in the book that illustrates this. So in deciding when that book was done, uh, I put it through three different reading groups in developing the manuscript that the publisher said, we think you got more than one book here. Uh, I took it apart. It fell into almost to the page, two, two, two uh, manuscripts. And the book agents that were taking the manuscripts and shopping them around to publishers said they thought this one, the original Frontiers, the first one we should go with. In the meantime, Kuya Minogue, who lives out on the, also not the same person I was talking about before, but lives out on the west coast of Canada, helped me edit it. And she's, she's a professional editor and writer and very tough. You know, she would put in there in red parentheses, what the hell are you trying to say here? You know, this, this doesn't make any sense, you know. <laughs> And so she would call me out and have me explain, you know, where I'd just been too casual about the writing. So it took uh, three reading groups, two publishers, and a few editors and commentators. People literally sent me written comments from the reading groups, and I integrated several of them into the uh, text and gave them credit. Um, I I probably could never have finished that book unless I had done it in that fashion because, you know, Forest for the Trees, I couldn't tell if it was done or not. And Buddy's written a book now, and I, you could probably testify to a similar kind of, you know, situation. So the basic, the basic idea I'd suggest, suggest to anybody who thinks they want to write something is get yourself a good collaborator. And between the two of you, like, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, you know, you'll come up with the finished work, you know, but doing it on your own is pretty hard, pretty tough. Yeah. Since I think Dennis had a point, Dennis, you want to comment on what you were talking, what you were interested in that second question? Well, first of all, I really liked that, that nothing is done because right before we got started, we talked about that it was kind of an intuition I have a few uh, abstract paintings. I love to paint myself, and um, yeah. abstract for two reasons. It's uh, it's more uh, liberating. Uh, you don't have those rules of putting the shades on the right sides when you're doing landscapes and all that. 
and yeah. uh, and and the second one is that 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 I'm not good enough to do landscapes and all that. <laughs> <laughs> but but I have I think out of the I, I probably have twenty paintings or something, and out of them, I think I have one I can definitely say that I don't want to touch anymore. But all the others, I always feel yeah. like there's something more to that. Uh, and then I'm thinking in, in a creative project, even with, when it comes to writing or a painting, I've seen two different models. One is where you start from a, an idea and you build on and on. Yeah. And, and the other one is the opposite way where you have the sculpture and then you chisel it down to make it more simple. Right. And, and right. that. So I don't know how that fits into this question, but, but that, that just came to mind. Well, the, uh, your first comments uh, struck me as funny because there's a famous painter whose name I can't remember, but uh, he had, at least in w one case, there was a painting that had been sold and had been resold and had been purchased by a museum and hung on the wall of the museum. And he goes in there with his paints one day and is work, working on it. <laughs> 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 and uh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so um, the single painting should be thought of as a slice, I think. You know, and the process is going that way. You're slicing it off and setting this aside, and you're continuing, um, especially abstract uh, work. So, what was the last thing you said? It was about you had the twenty some paintings and well, well, there was actually what you said with that that I had those and, and there was only one of them. I said I didn't feel the need to, so there was kind of an yeah. intuition where you said this is this is good as it is, but it's very yeah. rare that you get to that part. That part that was the first question, yeah. and the second one was the two different creative models of of chiseling it down or expand from an idea. Yeah, that's the part I wanted to talk about in design, and I use this to uh, try to profile what how I think zazen works, zen meditation. Well, broadly speaking, in art and design, we have um, two broad differences in in approach in method. One is called additive media, and one is called subtractive. So. To your point, if you are putting clay on an armature to build a bust of somebody, that's called additive. Very simple idea. If you're chipping stone away like Rodin revealing the thinker out of a block of stone, that's subtractive. So in one case, you're adding material. The other case, you're taking material away. So I like to use that as an analogy for meditation. What we're doing in meditation is not additive. There's nothing that meditation can change or add. Uh, it can only reveal what is already true or already real. And so what we're doing is chipping away. We're chipping away at our ignorance. We're trying to clear the clutter and get to the bottom of things. So as thoughts and impressions and ideas come up, it's not this, not that, not this, not that, not this, not that, until finally there's something undeniable. And uh, that has to be it. Peeling an onion is another analogy that's used for that, where you peel the onion down to the to the middle. And of course, in the middle of the onion, there's falls apart. There's nothing there. 
a lot of tears along the way. Hmm, that's good. Since I had, I never thought about that meditation or well, this whole process, really the whole awareness process is a, is a fading away. It's um it's a removal process. Yeah. It's more like stripping away to reveal what's under or disabusing yourself of your own confusion, mm -hmm. seeing through it one layer at a time. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. And, and that's in order to get to the truth that's inside you know, the, the form in the case of sculpting um, or the true self in the terms of meditation. Is that what we're saying? Is that the idea? Yeah, and I don't know if it was Rodin, but one of the sculptors, stone sculptors, and that's one of the things we did in design school. We learned to chisel stone. You made your own chisels and mm -hmm. so on. And um, one of them said, uh, I just chip away all of the stone that is not the sculpture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard wood sculptors say that thing, say that, yeah. It was very yeah. interesting because when you hold a chisel, you'd make a, one that's kind of like a fork that had points on it that would scrape surface, and you had points, and you had different kinds you'd make out of bar stock. In the Bauhaus tradition, you kind of make everything the old-fashioned way. And then you have the stone, and you have a sandbag that it sits on in a stand, so you're basically standing there chipping away at this thing. And uh, sculpture class would last all day. So by the end of the day, and you, you don't put your thumb under the under the uh, chisel because that's where the hammer might hit it. You put it on top of the chisel so the chisel is underneath. By the end of the day, you literally had to take one hand and push the other fingers open <laughs> to get them to open because mm. you've been pounding, 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 pounding. Not to state the obvious, but I think the Tao, when the Tao day, the day is a block of wood that when you chisel, it reveals the Tao. Am I off on that? Yeah, that every day is like that. Yeah, you could. That's a very good analogy, I think. Mm. You sit in meditation, all kinds of stuff comes up, and you you know, something genuine may occur. So it's not like you have to throw everything away. But as Buddha warns in the Shurangama Sutra, even if you're talking to God, you know, don't assume that you're enlightened. <laughs> you still have a ways to go. <laughs> so whatever occurs to us in our Zen meditation, we think of as grist to the mill. This is real. There's Dharma. Uh, something to be learned here. But the overall process is seen as one of subtraction, where you are trying to divest yourself of your confusion and your your uh, confused ideas about reality. The baggage that you carry, you know, trying to put it down. There was a famous uh, Zen story like that where the May have told it before. Monk is coming in carrying water. Did I talk about this with you guys? Um, so the monk, you know, monk is carrying two buckets of water in, and that's probably what he does every day of his life at the monastery, maybe more than once a day, because they subsisted on well water and they had to 
you know, chop wood, carry water, do do everything themselves, like my grandparents, basically farmers, uh, self-subsistence, you know, self-sufficient. And so the abbot happened to be there when he came in the door and he says, put it down. So the monk is carrying his two buckets and he don't, you know, suddenly this never happened before. He doesn't know what the abbot means. They probably had a great deal of respect, maybe even fear, you know, for the person who could throw them out the door anytime he wanted to. So he puts down one of the buckets of water and then the abbot says, put it down again. And he puts down the other bucket, right? <laughs> and then the abbot says, put it down. And he's enlightened. You want Marla? Or you're muted. What? <laughs> yeah, what? What? Yeah. There was nothing left to put down other than his burden, his baggage. Ah. That's what I thought. Okay, I just wanted mm. you to hear I guess. <laughs> That's the simplest interpretation I can make. So we have to put it down. We're all carrying it. That's the whole point, isn't it? The surrender. I think so. Recognize that you're schlepping this stuff around with you that you don't need to. Yeah. Really. That's, that's very similar to the drop the rock story, isn't it? Drop the rock. Drop the rock. Yeah. Tell us. Tell us. Oh, don't make me tell you a story. I'm not sure I know it. Right. So, the, yes, yeah, so the, the people are the people are, are on a boat and they're rowing out to the island of Serenity. And Mary comes running along and she's missed the boat and she thinks that she can jump in the water and swim. So as she's swimming along, she keeps going underneath the water and everybody's shouting from the boat, Mary, drop the rock, drop the rock. And she keeps bobbing up and then she keeps going back down again and they're shouting, drop the rock. And then she doesn't realise the fact that it's, it's all the baggage that she's that she's carrying around with her that's pulling her down. Yeah. All things like her anger, resentments, uh, dishonesty, all, all the fears that are holding her back. Uh, and when she starts to when she starts to get rid of it, she she manages to catch up with the boat, and um, so that was the, the, the drop of the rock. But I like what you're talking about the additive and the subtractive. We do quite a bit of that in recovery. Is something is something adding to my recovery, or is something taken away from my recovery? Where's the balance between it? Um, you know, what can I what can I keep doing, and what's not really working for me? So we kind of. We kind of concentrate on that sort of thing as well. So I, I like the additive and subtractive. And I do it with Facebook. I've got a love-hate thing with Facebook. So if, I, if anybody sends me a, a friend's request, my first thing is, are they actually going to add anything to my life or are they going to be a, a drain on my life? So that's that's kind of like the yes or no. That's that's how I know if I'm going to get involved with people involved with groups. Um, and they probably think the exact same of me as well. That's why I don't send any friend's requests. There's another one that involves subtraction. It comes from um, design and math. In design, there's a methodology, which means the study of method. Uh, there's lots of methods for doing creative work in groups as it, and as individuals and so forth, methods and media and, all, and so forth. And uh, I came up with a way of uh, creating an acronym for the method of creativity which is called, excuse me, my dear Aunt Sally. Now, that's that comes from mathematics, uh, high school math. You learn to solve quadratic equations. You solve the exponents first. Then you do the multiplication, then the division, then the addition, and finally the subtraction. 
And so if you do them out of order, your, your numerical answer will probably be incorrect. So that's the order in which you have to do them. So in design, solving the exponent would be getting at the root of the problem. What's, it, what's under the radical? Why are mm -hmm. we doing this? What's mm -hmm. the essence of this issue? A client may have a problem they bring you in professional design. So what is it? Sometimes you have to redefine, redefine it for the client. That's a big part of your job. Then the next thing is multiplication, like mind mapping, brainstorming, you know, uh, outputting free association, all the things that may be associated with a solution to this problem. The third is division, how to dividing it into groups and starting to organize it in groups. If you do any of these things out of order, it, it messes up the next stages. The next is addition. You look at each of the groups individually and see if it's complete. Uh, you may not this, you may have to flesh this out, this category, whatever it happens to be. And then the last thing you do is subtraction. You take out everything that you don't have to deal with current at present, and you put it on the shelf for later development so that you get your task down to something manageable, something doable, and that gives you your point of action. So when you write a book, it's like that. The first thing is, why am I writing this book? You know, and in the introduction to the original frontier, I talk about just the hesitancy you have in adding yet another book to the pile of books out there on Zen, right? What's the point? Do we need another book on Zen? No, we don't. <clears throat> so, and then um, the mind mapping, the multiplication part is what all goes in this book? What all do I have to say? What, you know, what's important? And as I said, the first time it was way too much. It was two ideas, two books in one. And these days, a book is only one idea. Uh, just like you see movie titles now, they're down to one word, right? You don't see these long movie titles anymore. It's one word. And the same thing for books. So you cut through the clutter with that kind of simplicity. So then the next thing you do when you, when you uh, flesh out the mind map of your book is you go in and you start filling in all the categories, the chapters and so forth that you're going to write about. And then the very last thing you do is you edit you edit out everything that this book doesn't need. And, you know, if you're like me, you tend to put a lot of stuff in there that you're very pre precious about. And you don't want to take it out. That's why you need a good sounding board collaborator to say, this junk doesn't belong in here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Save this for a later book. <laughs> because you really do want that, uh, the final product, whether it's a book or painting or whether, whatever it is, to have had that whole process uh, at the very end the last thing you do is subtract meaning you edit you you winnow it down to the absolutely necessary and uh what is called lean 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 and muscular writing you do that on a line by line basis as well um it's a very painful process uh but and it takes time so that you can get some distance away from it as the writer and be able to read it as a reader and once you can read your own text as a reader, you can see how garbled it is. The very last read, most writers recommend that you read it aloud and even record it and play it back and force yourself to listen to it so that you begin to hear the sound of the, the sound of your own language. That, that way you find your voice, find your voice. So that process, excuse me, my dear Aunt Sally, even though originated in math, it's, it's really applicable to every creative process.
make, making a product is like that. Editing and subtracting is you take out all the unnecessary parts. You take out all the unnecessary steps in production and so forth at the end. You can't do that in the beginning. You, you have to do it at the end. Hmm. You would think, uh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Huh. Once you've done several of the same kind of thing, then you you get to where this whole process is more streamlined and you don't have to go through such agonizing struggle, you know, in every phase of it. But it's still, it's still, you have to surrender to the process. I mean, you have exactly. to, because you can't hold on yeah. to everything you want to hold on to. That's right. Yeah, That's right. You know, if you live long enough, you can write another book. <laughs> Put that stuff in there. <laughs> Do another painting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any any more questions or clarification? <laughs> anything y'all need clarification on? That that was good. Since say thank you, thank you. Mm. Uh, I, and I just wanted to mention I am reading your book little by little. Wonderful. It's wonderful. very you know what it's very accessible. Thank you. Very accessible. Good. I have used your horse ride the horse riding to meditation horse breaking metaphor several times already. Since say yeah. that's good. It's very cattle good. drive. Anything else? I see, you have, I see you have Elvis on your back wall. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm a big Elvis fan. <laughs> I liked uh, Gene Vincent, who came out about the same time, a little before Elvis. Elvis was before my time, too. I just, you know, it's so campy. But um, mm -hmm. I got that at the. Cleveland uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My family, my brother and father were both jazz musicians. They did not welcome rock and roll. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Bad. It took all the business for one thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for your time, Sensei. <laughs> Anything else, guys, for Sensei today? Mm -hmm. Sensei, we have the link for your book in the uh, in the episode notes. How's sales going? How are you doing with your sales on your book? I don't track it personally, but uh, the publisher says they're going great. They're unexpectedly good, and they're very appreciative of everything that we have done to promote the book. Mm -hmm. And good. everybody who reads it, I just uh, ask you please to write a review uh, for Amazon.com. They say when we when we hit 35 positive reviews is a kind of tipping point. Oh, I'll go ahead and do that then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so our goal is to get to 35 reviews and I don't know how many, last time I looked, there were about 10. I didn't mm -hmm. review it. I didn't even think to do a review. I'll do that. I, I yeah, didn't even think to do that. On our website, when you open it up and it shows my book and shows uh, Casey, uh, Andrew Dietz's book, uh, follow the meander. That's a very good book. You might want to get to follow the meander. Uh, at the bottom of that, there's this little picture of a book, and it says the best way to thank an author, thank an author, is to write a review. <laughs> I would be happy to do that, really. And I, well, I had no idea they were important before I, before I post it too. You don't have to, just as long as it's not too awful. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be as long as it's not too too honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be. Anything else, guys, for Sensei before we close today? Everyone good? 
remember Buddha's birthday, it's usually the 8th. Today I have a Emory special program in Emory where I'm participating, celebrating Buddha's birthday, so I'll chant uh, Metta Sutta. Thank you, sir. Happy birthday on May 8th to the Buddha. I'll remember that. Cool. Well, guys, if I don't talk to you, y'all have a great week, and we will see you next week. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars, Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.